Word of God in Romans, Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, November 9th, 1938. Nazi forces smashed windows and set fire to 1,400 synagogues all across Germany and Austria and destroyed thousands of Torah scrolls. Many of the acts that were demolishing the scrolls were deliberately made a public spectacle. For example, in one small town, the scrolls were sent rolling down the street as Hitler youth on bicycles rode over them. In Berlin, the scrolls were burned in a major public square. As Torah scrolls burned in a synagogue's yard in Dusseldorf, German men, some wearing the robes of rabbis, danced around the fire. It became known as the Night of Broken Glass. That hatred was intense and pervasive, but for the Nazis, there was a reason they were doing this. It was purposeful. In his book, A World Without Jews, Professor Alan Confino argues that in order for the Nazi imagination to flourish, they had to cut themselves off from everything Jewish, including the Hebrew Scriptures, they thought. This symbolic and obviously very public act of burning Old Testament scrolls, they thought, would liberate Germany from the constraints of the Judeo-Christian morals, ethics, and beliefs. Dr. Confino writes, Burning the Hebrew Bible scrolls was a project to construct a new German religion that would owe nothing to the Jews and to other Christian Europeans. The enslavement of Europeans of the Nazis' worldview depended on the destruction of the Jews first. On February 3, 1944, the Reich Press Office announced the Jewish question is the key to world history. The Nazis had a strategy for their goal. They were trying to reimagine life without Christian roots, and to do that, they had to start getting rid of the Old Testament. As Christians, we will also cut ourselves off from our roots. We don't start with the Old Testament and understand the Old Testament. Where we sit today, right now, the Church of Jesus Christ, is rooted in the ancient promised plan of God in the Old Testament. And Paul knows that too. And he's going to bring Jew and Gentile together in Christ. And he's going to trace out the unfolding plan of God for Jew and Gentile. To slash away that arrogance and the better than you attitudes that were hurting the Roman church in their mission for the Lord. It was the essence of Paul's argument that the gospel that he and his fellow apostles preached was no innovation. It was attested in the Hebrew Scriptures. You look at the sermons in the book of Acts, and you look at these passages here, and you'll see that it was the fulfillment of God's promise to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to proclaim that God's way of righteousness through faith, by through Abraham had been blessed, was still open to all who believed, as Abraham did. But what about Israel? What about Israel? They were God's chosen people, and obviously, for the most part, they seemed to be people who didn't respond to the gift that God had given in Messiah. That means he had now unchosen them. They changed his mind about Israel. Would that mean that he would change his mind about us as well? So here we are in Romans chapter 9, picking up as we saw a couple weeks ago in Romans chapter 8, the unbreaking power of God's love. Can we lose that protection? And Paul takes this, the seize on, as another opportunity to answer 
a question that had probably been posed often to him. Why are there so many unbelieving Jews? If they're God's chosen people, why didn't more of them embrace the Messiah that God gave them? And so in these three chapters, Romans 9 through 11, Paul answers that. Sometimes Romans is often read like a theoretical theology, right? It's not. Romans is a pastoral theology. What I mean by that is he's dealing with issues in a church. He's addressing hearts here. He's not only saying this is what the gospel is. He's saying this is what the gospel does. And his concern here is a peace between the Jew and Gentile in these particular Roman house churches that comes by the power of the Spirit through the good news that transforms once rival cultures into serving one another now in humility. And Romans 9 through 11 contributes to that theme as well. What Paul's getting at in these chapters is really twofold. Number one, God is faithful. And number two, God's plans are not like we think they should be. They're not straightforward chronology here. They're three-dimensional, four-dimensional here. That is, God can be faithful even when specific individuals in Israel aren't faithful. God can skip and hop and he can move left or right and he's going to keep going forward. God is faithful because God continues to work actually through Israel for the world's redemption. You could say it a different way. <clears throat> Wait. And you'll see here in as this chapter unfolds, that God's faithfulness can mean that God can shift here from one person to another according to his own eternal plan. But through it all, God remains faithful in his covenant with Abraham. The issue in this letter here is that uh, there are probably some Jewish believers who are asserting that they have a blessed position in God's redemptive history. And then you have Gentiles... Who are saying, well, actually, look here. You guys are minority, etc. here. Uh, we are the dominant ones here. You listen to us. These Jewish believers have this question. Is it Israel? The elect, the chosen people of God? And the Gentiles have another one. Isn't it the case that God has moved on from Israel to the Gentiles in salvation through Lord Jesus? And so what Paul's point here is this. As he deals with the, these issues of the pastor's heart to real people. Real people in these churches. Paul's announcing that God, including Gentiles, even shifting to having a majority of Gentiles in the church here, is uh, because of the unbelief of Israel, is not a sign of God's unfaithfulness to his covenant. Rather, this move through the Messiah to Paul and this Gentile mission here is consistent with other shifts in history that God has made here. And these shifts actually are going to bring the two together and bring them in peace with one another, Jewish and Gentile believers. So what he's going to show here in Romans 9 is that the unbelief of Israel is not anything new in the history of Israel. There's always been a remnant of faithful believers. And to the Gentile believers, he's going to tell them that, okay, you're, you're, you're agents of God's redemption in the world. That's, a, that's still a sign of God's grace and faithfulness to his covenant that he made with Abraham. And I want to remind you at the end of chapter 11, he tells them, that there's no guarantee that you also, all you will be um, central agents in God's plan of redemption. Things can change. So Romans 
Now that we're here to chapter 9, we're going to get to chapter 11 before chapter 12, verse 1, that key verse. Romans 1 through 11 tells us uh, the, the basis here of transforming the minds of both Jewish believers and Gentile believers to the live as brothers and sisters, siblings. Some of the Jewish believers think the solution is law, Torah. Gentile believers, some of them think the solution is no, no law. And Romans 9 through 11 is part of Paul's answer to the transformation of these both of both of these groups in Rome. The solution here is righteousness by faith and transformation by the Holy Spirit. So what Paul's going to tell them is this, that Israel, yes, still are the chosen people of God, and it's going to press the Jewish believers to see that they're now sharing this with Gentile believers. They are not shoved aside by Gentiles, and themselves, as Jewish believers, cannot shove Gentiles aside either to an inferior location in God's plan. Jew and Gentile believers are brothers in one family, is what he's trying to show us here. Israel has failed, but the word of God's promise has not. God will be faithful to his promised plan. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever, is the principle Paul is trying to bring out here. So here's what he says in chapter 9, 1 through 5. He says, I'm telling the the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. What? That I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Why? That's a deep statement there. It gets deeper, verse 3. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Do you understand what he's saying there? Paul wants to see his fellow Hebrews come to Messiah and fulfill God's purpose for their lives. Jewish people with the Jewish king. An escape. The judgment through salvation of the Messiah is our saving king. And he is dead serious about this. So much so that he is saying this, that he would switch places with them and have his name blotted out from God's promises to take their curse. You know, doctrine and theology can't just be a theological exercise. It has to be alive for the heart of God and the heart of the gospel. What's the heart of the gospel? People transformed into Christ. That was Paul's heartbeat here. Translated from death and judgment to fully functioning image bearers of the glory of God. And friends, if we're approaching the word and our Christian lives with dead ruts, we are missing joy and the participation God has for us in this new life. Paul's theology isn't divorced from, from, uh, 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 from the heart of God and active participation in his plan for the nations to bring about what Paul calls the obedience of faith. Paul's life is, is, is in line with Jesus and his life is surrendered to the king and he's been given a supernatural love. There's no other way to explain what he says in verse 3, is there? A supernatural love, just like his master. Jesus, who became a curse, 
so that Paul and Israelite could be set free from his bondage. And now Paul says, if it were possible, and I, I can't even wrap my mind around this and say, and say that's this is this is my prayer. You can't. Paul says, I want to see myself given as a ransom for many. Cursed from Christ. I'd switch places. Why is he in such anguish for them? Because God had blessed them so much. And yet overall, together as a group in general, they were rejecting his greatest gift, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. He says in verse 4, To whom pertain the adoption? Israel is called God's firstborn, his own possession, his son, his people, his chosen people. He says the glory of they have the radiance of God and His presence among them out of all the nations. Think of the pillar of fire and the Shekinah glory of the Ark of the Covenant and the Temple. The covenants, the promise God made to Abraham that out of you, one will come who will bless all the nations. The covenant He made with Moses. Blessings and curses. You follow this. This is what will happen. You reject this. This is what you will see. That was a conditional covenant. The covenant he made with David, an unconditional covenant. That he said, out of you will be a forever king from your line. And then, of course, the new covenant. To them, it's been given the covenants. The giving of the law. Sinai, from the very hands of God, to show how to love God and name you purely. You set apart from the rest of the nation. The service of God, the way to worship, the provision for sin and sacrifices. The promises. He says, I'll be your God and the God of your seed after you. Through you all the nations will be blessed. I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. He says, of, of whom are the fathers, the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the climax here. And from whom, according to the flesh, Christ, Jesus, Messiah came, who is over all. Jesus, that Jewish baby. From the line of David, the climax, the seed of Abraham, seed of David, the Jewish Messiah, the saving king, the true Israelite, the perfect one, the center of God's promised plan, and the Jewish God-man. He says, that's what they've had. And it leads us to a question of what Paul had said in Romans 1.16. is true that the gospel offer is for the Jew first, and also to the Greek, also to the Gentile then why is it that so few Jewish people are receiving salvation from their sins? Paul says, it's this very fact that's given me great sorrow and unceasing anguish in verse 2. But look what he says in verse 6. He is confident in the effectiveness of the promises of God. God given them these things, the adoption of sons, divine glory, covenants, the law, the temple worship, the promises... Where, where, where then was the problem? <clears throat> the problem was not in God's word. The problem was not in God's promise. Verse 6. Not as though the word of God has taken none effect, no effect. Where they are not all Israel who are of Israel, <clears throat> excuse me, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. What he's saying is this. Israel has failed. They rejected the Lord. 
God gave them opportunity after opportunity, right? It's going to say there's still a future for them, I believe, in chapter 11. He's saying, when they had God's offers, they rejected it as a whole. But God's word of promise has not. God is faithful to his promise plan. So hear Paul out. God's promise is loaded with the power of God's word and the faithfulness of a God who cannot lie. And so he reminds us, not everyone who is an Israelite fulfills God's purposes. So he'll talk about people used in good and even bad for the pipeline here, for God's missionary promise plan that climaxes in Christ to the nations. And in just chapter 9, he's going to refer to Genesis three times. Malachi, Exodus two times, Isaiah, Hosea, and then Isaiah four more times. Just in chapter 9. And I'm not even going to talk about chapter 10 through 11 yet. And through 9 through 11, there's 24 questions that Paul asks to keep us focused on the big picture. Questions especially asking the Jewish believers in the house churches to bring humility and, 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 and unity at the awe of God's plan for Jew and Gentile. So he says this, case in point number one, to show that God's word has not failed, God's promise has not failed, is what he says here in the end of verse 7. But in Isaac shall your seed be called. Now this isn't a reference to not all they are, all Israel, which are of Israel. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those, those who are the children of the flesh, these aren't the children of God, the children of the promise are counted the seed. And you have to think back to Genesis. Do you remember the story there with Abraham and Sarah? God said, you're going to have a descendant. They're really old. They can't have kids physically. Together. And so Sarah says, alright, I know what I'm going to do. I have this servant. She's still young. Through her, you're going to have a child. And he gives her Hagar, the Egyptian. He gives him, uh, she gives Abraham Hagar. And Hagar conceives and has a son named Ishmael. Abraham's son. Ah. Was that God's plan? No. It wasn't God's plan. And you can read about this in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 21. Joseph said, God was not dependent on Sarah's strategy. He had it taken care of. Now, if you go with me to Genesis chapter 1, you're going to see that um, though Ishmael wasn't the chosen one, God gave Ishmael a different kind of a blessing. In the Genesis chapter 21 and verse, uh, verse 17. And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in your hand, for I will make him a great nation. God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer, and he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. God was with Ishmael, but he was not going to be the one through whom the promise will come. Not at all. He was not the one through whom the line of Israel and the Redeemer would come. Isaac was. So though he was a child of the flesh of Abraham, he was not a child of the promise. Paul's saying here, 
just because you are a Jew doesn't mean you're a child of the promise. He's already talked about this at the end of Romans 2, that the fulfilled Jew in purpose there is the Spirit of God living inside the circumcision of the heart. So what does this teach us here? Abraham and Sarah's scheme wouldn't work. Only God's promised plan through Sarah, not Ishmael. Isaac was the one who would carry the seed line of Abraham and the future Messiah because if, through Israel because God had said that. And you could write a cross-reference to Galatians 3.16 and see what Paul says there about that. God's word of promise has not failed. God is faithful to his promised plan. God was faithful to his promised plan despite man. Despite man. Now look with me in verse 10. He's going to say, okay, it's like he takes a nail and he takes a hammer and he goes, boom, one hit. Now he's going to take the hammer and he's going to go, boom, two hits and drive it in a little deeper. And here's what he says in verse 10. And not only this, but when a Rebecca also conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, and the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. <clears throat> okay. We'll give you that one, Paul, Abraham, and Ishmael and Isaac. And Paul says, Okay, what about a birth that didn't come through scheming? But a birth from the same father and mother... A birth of even twins, boys born at the same time, and born in answer to prayer. What about that? And God had told Rebecca when she found out she could she was she had conceived that there were two nations in her womb. And so Paul's saying, I got a better I got one even better, an illustration even better here. <clears throat> And you remember some of the story of Esau and Jacob? Esau, he was a strong guy. He liked to hunt, right? He was his dad's son. And then Jacob, his mom favored Jacob. Jacob was more of the one who worked in the kitchen and stayed more at home. And the time came when Isaac was ready to die. And it was time to pass on the birthright, the will, the blessing, which always happened to the oldest son. And Rebecca found out about it. And so she hatched her own scheme, her own thing. And Jacob, because Isaac is blind, makes his arms hairy. When Caden was little, she looked at my hairy arms and she said, Dad, you have a lot of feathers. <laughs> Put goat skin on his hands. Jacob was, is this you, Esau? It was no. Jacob said, yeah, it's me, Esau. And Isaac says, doesn't sound like you. And Jacob says, here, have this soup that I made that Esau always likes and so he gave it to Isaac, and Isaac's like, all right, I guess you're the guy, and gave him the blessing. 
And then Isaac, Esau finds out about it, right? And what does Esau want to do? He's got to get his more than his pound of flesh, right? He's got to kill Jacob. He is infuriated. And so he takes his hunting skills and he hunts down Jacob. And Jacob goes, takes off like an arrow. And he runs to his uncle Laban. And he stays there. During that time, God's doing work in his life. And he traces out the life of Jacob. By the end, you come to Jacob when he was an old man in Egypt. He returns to land and he's a different man. And Esau becomes his own nation, and Jacob has these 12 sons, right? He becomes called Israel. This family, this nation. Two nations are in the Later in the history of Israel, when David becomes king, by the way, the Edomites, because they're the ones descended from, from, uh, from, from, uh, from Esau. <clears throat> There's a whole book written about him in the Bible, Obadiah. You're saying, your pride is going to be brought low. They came and they paid homage to David and served him. Isaac also blessed Esau. In later history, God told Israel, don't abhor an Edomite, for he's your brother. In Deuteronomy 23.7. But God's plan for the Redeemer was not through Esau. It was through Jacob. Through these failures. And human expectations of how things were done in traditions and cultures and human logic, it didn't matter to God. Because God said Jacob would be the one for whom the blessing would be transferred to and through. It seems counterintuitive to, to our brains and to that culture, but God is the master chess player and he wins every time in the end. And Jacob was the one through whom the promised plan of God would pass through in the unfolding plan of God. And so Paul takes the hammer to the nail and he says, I got another one for you here with the same story. He pounds it deep. And he says, remember Malachi? And he quotes from Malachi, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated comes from Malachi 1, 2, and 3. Written centuries after the events recorded in Genesis. And Esau is now a nation. Israel, of course, is a nation. And the time had passed and it shows that Edom was a nation deserving God's judgment. So I want you to go to Malachi chapter 1. If you can't find Find Matthew and go a couple pages left. You'll find the last book in our English Bible here in the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi is warning Israel hey, repent, turn to the Lord, fear the Lord. And there's some who are going to listen and some who aren't. It's normal. But he's saying this in Malachi 1, 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, wherein have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons or the jackals of the wilderness. 
we have to understand here is love and hate are not thought of in emotional terms. It's a description of God chose Jacob and not Esau. Here. Jacob's family became the one, not Esau's selection. Here's what had happened. God had chosen Israel out of all of the nations. He blessed Israel out of all of the nations. He made good on his promise to Jacob. And Esau's family, the Edomites, now hundreds of years later, in Malachi's day, were crumbling. Israel, at this point in their history, had been freed from captivity. And were now returning to the promised land, returning to the land. They were rebuilding. The temple at this time had been rebuilt. God was showing his blessing to Israel and Esau and the Edomites who were descended from Esau, were now fading out of the picture. The promise that God had said to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger, was fulfilled. And what Paul is saying is this. God is faithful to his promise. Now, the rest of the chapter here, we'll see next week, he progresses the story of Israel. Israel now is a nation in slavery to Egypt, and Moses has a liver in the Exodus, and you can read Exodus 33 for some more background here. But here's the point. God is faithful to his promise plan regardless of human merit. Jacob is a pretty wily guy, right? Scheming guy. I mean, it's just seen to follow in the family, right? God's plan for the ages will not be stopped. The word of God has not failed, though man has failed. God has made the way through faith. That's what chapter 4 is all about, with our connecting us back to Abraham and how Abraham came to faith in God even before Israel was a nation. His plan has arrived despite man's schemes, despite failures, despite sin. Despite man's good or bad, he has been faithful. He has made the way for Jew and Gentile. And Jew and Gentile in in, in these churches in Rome could not place each other aside to an inferior location in the plan of God. Jew and Gentile were now believers together in family, brothers and sisters in one family from different generations and subcultures. The word of God's promise plan has not failed. He's got more. We'll pick up on that next week. But at the end of this section of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul can say this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And then, in his fashion, he quotes again from the Old Testament. And he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his advisor, his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be recompensed or repaid to him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. And that's where we're going to stop today. That's the God that we have. 
That's the God who has worked in each of your individual lives and your stories. Don and Terry Kelly are submitting um, uh, their testimonies here for application for membership to the church. And it's always exciting to see the stories of how people came to Jesus, what Jesus is doing in their lives. And some of you remember that Canadian pastor decades ago who came, a Canadian evangelist who came and preached in the towns here. And got him working in their hearts up to that time and brought them the saving knowledge of Jesus through the Word of God preached. You all have your own individual stories, young and old. Some of you haven't come to Jesus yet, and God is working in your heart. And there's going to be a day when you finally say yes. Make sure it's not too late. May God has been faithful. God's been faithful to this church. The people he's brought in and the people he sent out through it. God's word does not fail. And the grace of God at work is seen in living letters, as Paul would say in the faces that are looking back at me this morning and all around. God takes us all from the same situation. I grew up in a pastor's home. Logan, you grew up in a lobster's home. Some of you grew up without dads or moms. We're all in the same situation, condemned at the foot of the cross. And God takes all of us. And His Spirit works in our hearts. And He blows the wind. And we try to move the sails. And He blows the wind. And there comes a day where we say, Yes, Lord. And we receive His Son as the Savior King. And that day the seed bursts forth. And that growth continues and transformation continues. And one day God's going to finish that. He's going to bring us into eternity with Him. And guess what? When we're in eternity with the Lord, I think our growth still going to continue. Our knowledge is going to be expanded. But I don't think it will be a static experience where, oh, we're done. There will be no sin, but there will be greater and greater understanding. God's word has not failed, is not failing, and shall not fail. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are so good to us. Lord, I pray for hearts here that have not opened themselves to you. Hearts that are trusting in the wrong things, perhaps the fact that their families are Christian or whatever it is. I pray that you would reveal to them the tragedy of knowing you are the one way and not receiving that themselves. 
Lord, work in hearts, bring them to the saving power of the gospel. I pray that they would respond this morning. As today being the day of rescue and deliverance, that you are their saving king through your death and burial, resurrection and ascension. Lord, I pray for us who have been grafted into Israel. Lord, may we never grow in pride, but may our boasting be always in the Lord and his grace. Thank you for your determined plan to complete the work you've done in Jesus Christ. And we praise you for it as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are a people who rejoice in God's faithfulness. Psalm 95 reminds us of who our God is and, and the, the, the rock of our salvation. Psalm 95, oh come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his name are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Church, stand with me and let's sing How Firm a Foundation.
throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. 